0: Please do turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi and chapter 3. As you do so, it's uh, a delight for me to uh, be here this evening and meet a few old faces. Now, old faces sometimes can simply mean people you haven't met for a while, but uh, there are a few here that are old faces in more ways than one. So it's been uh, great to quickly link up. And also, if I could add very quickly, you've done a brilliant job on your auditorium. I've preached here before, many years ago, and when I came in here, I was totally lost. If it went for uh, your pastor letting me know what has happened, I would have thought I am going senile. And might need the attention of some medical doctor. But uh, thankfully, he explained, and uh, yeah, it's uh, a wonderful piece of work that has taken place here. The passage that we'll be looking at really is uh, the whole of chapter 4 of Malachi, but we, we're beginning with verse 13, and so of chapter 3. So what I'll do is I'll first of all just read verse 13 down to verse 15 because it provides the context. It provides the ambience of uh, drooping spirits. And then we can see how the Christian hope enables us to uh, really have revived spirits in the midst of uh, crushing times. And so, um, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 13 says, "'Your words have been hard against me,' says the Lord. But you say, "'How have we spoken against you?' "'You have said, "'It is vain to serve God.'" "'What is the profit of our keeping his charge?' or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This was like the the kind of response or the kind of words that were coming inadvertently out of the lips of those who were uh, the people of God at the time that Malachi was writing. And the words were an expression of what was happening in their hearts. Basically, they were words of complaint. And at the end of chapter two, we find that God has already referred to this. In chapter two and verse 17, we read there, you have worried the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we worried him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, at the time that Malachi was writing, the people of Israel had largely come back from captivity and were settling back in the promised land and especially around Jerusalem they were with very high anticipation because of the kind of prophecies that had accompanied their return the prophecies amounted to the fact that Israel was going to experience a most glorious season glorious in terms of prosperity, and then also glorious in terms of righteousness, godly living. That's really what they were anticipating as they came into uh, what was then the promised land. And just two examples should suffice. If you go with me to um, Haggai, and uh, I was going to say chapter one. Uh, But let's quickly jump to chapter 2 so that we catch up on time. And uh, I want you to notice uh, chapter 2 and verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 7, where God says, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house, meaning the temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So you can imagine the statement that that temple that was magnificent, for lack of a better term, was going to be nothing compared to that which was going to be set up before them. Or, as we read in Zechariah, I'll just quickly take you to two chapters, Zechariah 1 and verse 19, or maybe let's begin from verse 16, and then we just read 16 and 17. Therefore, says the Lord, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities, listen to this, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem, And then chapter 8. Chapter 8, I will just read. Uh, let's begin from verse 5. I want to go up to verse 8 because that's where we have this aspect of faithfulness and righteousness coming in apart from the prosperity. Verse 5. And the streets of the city, this is referring to Jerusalem, shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country and will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So they will return. And then this is what will happen. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness." So these were powerful prophecies that would have made them say, let's head back to the promised land, let's head back to Jerusalem, let's let's go and, as it were, enjoy the fruit of these promises. Well, that's not exactly what happened by this time. Israel was still largely under captivity, although they had been allowed to come back. The Medes and the Persians were still ruling uh, over them. Um, There was still a lot of um, uh, wickedness, both in the context of the place of worship. If you've read Malachi, you remember that God was saying, shut the doors. Put out the fire, just close down the whole place, and so on, because he was very unhappy with the way in which the the priests were accepting blind animals and and crippled animals and and defiled animals uh, for worship. There was marital unfaithfulness taking place. There were the poor that were being trampled upon by those that were rich, and so forth. In short, There was unrighteousness. And then the wicked seemed to have been getting away with it. And that's the issue that we then read about at the end of chapter 2 and towards the end of chapter 3. It was causing those who were genuinely wanting to see God glorified in the promised land, genuinely wanting to see a glorious season among the people of God, it was causing them to be, disp- to be despondent, to be depressed, to, to really be asking the kind of questions that we, we have here. And friends, Christianity can, can often be like that. You, you read, for instance, the book of Acts, you see the way in which the church was galloping on with thousands getting converted. You, you see what was being done at the hands of the apostles. You, you read about churches being planted right across Judea and right across uh, the Roman province of Asia, crossing over into Europe in such a short time, and, and you say to yourself, what's gone wrong? Why are we not seeing this in our own day? And when you look at what largely surrounds the Christian church, it is scandal after scandal. All the things that could go wrong seem to be going wrong. The people are being defrauded and sexually abused and and men of the cloth seem to be getting away with it and... It's almost embarrassing to be in a public place and somebody calls you pastor. You feel like sinking because you know that people are looking, saying, okay. So he's one of them. He seem to be getting away with that which is wrong. But it's worse when what is wrong is being done to you and people get away with it that within perhaps even the context of the church, people slander you, malign you, work against you, perhaps even get you fired from your place of work, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and no, the heavens seem to be like brass. And in the end, The complaint that we are reading about here, although it won't come out of your lips, it's in the heart. It is saying, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, the statement is, does it really pay to save the Lord, does it? And especially if you've been an individual who was very faithful in serving the Lord. You, you believed you're putting in your lot, and you expected the Lord to also put in his lot. And then it's been disease, it's been death, it's been people maligning you. And in the process, it's like, okay, God... I'll still be going to church, but that's the most you can expect from me because it does not really pay to save the Lord. Look at me. Well, that's the state that uh, we find the people of God in Malachi. Not all of them because among them were the actual people that were making life impossible for others. But these are statements being made by the genuine people of God. And God is saying, your words have been hard against me. The words are harsh towards me. Why should this be the case? Well, what's the response to this? Ultimately, through Malachi, God seems to say, look Again, at my promises to you. Because the promises that God made to his people were far-reaching promises. The promises that were to go beyond the time in which they were living. The promises that were to go all across into New Testament times in the days when the Messiah himself would come the promises that we're going to go right through to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, everyone was going to see that it really pays to be on God's side. And that's what I want us to see very quickly as we make our way to the end of Malachi, to the end of Malachi. And the first thing that we notice is that, yes, in the midst of this level of apparent contradiction, God's people tend to confer with one another, remain in fellowship with one another, and because of that, they tend to still draw encouragement from one another that keeps them going in the midst of these discouraging times. Look at the way it is put in verse 16 down to verse 18. We read there, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And this is God now speaking. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who saves him. Then, on that day, then... Once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And friends, this was obvious what was happening in Israel itself. That if you were to go into some homes, you would find that those who genuinely feared the Lord who were failing to understand the meeting point between God's promises and God's providence, they were not kicking God in the face. No, they were encouraging one another in those homes. They were speaking into one another's lives. And often, that's where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. It is when God's people give up on such fellowship, that's when they are at the mercy of the evil one. So one of the things we ought to realize is this, that in our most discouraged times, the worst mistake is for you to withdraw from the people of God. It's the worst mistake because now you are left to yourself processing your own thoughts and you go from one level of depression to another. But it is when you are together with the people of God and you are mourning the, the lack of appreciation of God's love and God's glory. And as you are bemoaning the unfaithfulness that surrounds you, and you are praying together, you are still seeking to serve the Lord together in the midst of such difficult times. You are encouraging one another, singing the praises of God, the great hymns of the Christian faith that, Lift up the drooping spirits, and you are doing so together. There's a way in which the warmth of the other saints warms up your own soul, and the warmth of your soul warms up their souls, and consequently you march on together. God says he's taking note of those times of fellowship. Yes, over a cup of tea, over a cup of coffee, but it is God's words being spoken into each other's lives. God says, I've, I've opened a book in heaven. Those things are being recorded. And come the day of judgment, Those are the things that will be replayed and you will be rewarded accordingly. At that time, those who are wicked will be seen for who they really are because at that point, they will be punished. Let me ask, are you somebody who at this point feel very dejected And depressed can you be described as somebody with drooping spirits the question is have you given up on the gathering of the saints are you now an individual who prefers to just be alone or do you treasure the saints and treasure the times of fellowship with the saints that you might be genuinely encouraged well the bible here goes on to speak about that distinction that will take place on that final day of judgment and it will be something that is going to make all the suffering appear with the while. in other words if you were to draw a line in the middle of the page and you list down on the left side all those things that are causing you to be utterly depressed. And then you begin to write on the right side the glorious promises of God that await you. At the end of time, you will say to yourself, these don't even start to compare. They don't. Because my God has a glorious time ahead. Look at the way he puts it in chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 3. He says that, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble." That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And then verse 2, but for you who fear my name, there it is again, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the hope that revives the soul. It is one that Malachi was using to to basically say to the people that were feeling dejected, that look into the future. History is moving towards a a spear end. That's where everything is moving, and it will meet finally on God's day of judgment. And at that point, you will not envy the people you are speaking about here when you are saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them forget it not on that day because you shall see him come in wrath to punish them for their sin you will not say evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. On that day, they will not escape because, as he puts it here, the sun will burn like an oven. The arrogant and all evildoers will be like stubble, burnt up entirely. As God in his wrath comes to deal with them in justice. I think most of us will remember the, uh, the famous Psalm 73 when the psalmist began to envy the prosperity of the wicked and began to wonder that perhaps it does not pay to be righteous. And he says that for him, he seemed to have been beaten literally every day. And he was wondering as he looked at the, 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 the bulging out of those who were wicked, that perhaps they were the ones that God truly blessed. And he said, the more he tried to think about it, the more depressed he was. And then he says, until I entered. The sanctuary of God and he adds then I understood their final destiny and at that point he went to God and said God forgive me because I was behaving like a brutish beast before you I wasn't thinking forgive me because he began to see that their end was going to be that of perishing. It's like if we were to use the picture of two cows in, on a farm, separated by a fence, and one is, is uh, being fed with very nutritious fodder and is, consequently becoming extremely fat and sleek and so on. And then here you are on the other side of the fence, yeah, sort of barely surviving, and thinking to yourself, well, that must be um, Uncle Joe's favorite cow compared to me. Why is he favoring this way? Until perhaps word gets to you that he's being prepared for the slaughter in two weeks' time. Suddenly you say, wow, I'm blessed. It <laughs> just completely changes the picture, doesn't it? Well, that's what is being brought out here. Exactly what the psalmist in, in Psalm 73 was beginning to understand. That ultimately, when, when God allows the wicked to get away with things, They are being prepared for the slaughter, the final slaughter. You don't start envying them. You don't do that. And that's the point that is here, that there will be neither root nor branch remaining when the sun comes blazing in all its heat. But look at the opposite effect of the sun upon those who at one time were feeling depressed, but now they are changing completely. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun, the same blazing sun, but now the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing its wings, and you shall go out leaping like cows From the store. What a different picture. If you've ever lived on a farm, you will know that if in the morning they open the place for maybe even just the the cows and calves to come out, the cows normally, as usual, come out with that majestic walk. No sign that there's any excitement in them. But you look at the cows when it's now morning. And the doors are open. They come on, jumping here and jumping there. You can tell that they're finally free and excited. The day has dawned. And that's the picture that is being brought out here concerning the people of God. That they'll be coming out of a closure. They are now free. They are coming out of the darkness of the night. Now, the day has dawned. Look at them. The joy, the thrill, the exuberance that is there in the people of God. Brethren, that's our hope. And yet it doesn't end. It, it speaks about the, the final vindication that's going to come to the people of God. So we don't need to revenge any cause today. He will do the avenging. Look at verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for there shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The picture there is that the wicked have have been burned like in an oven. They've been reduced to ashes. And now you are literally now just stepping on them, stepping as you are jumping like calves all over the place. That's the kind of picture that is there. And obviously, it's a picture of your final vindication. The final triumph is yours. It's not theirs. Those who've defrauded you, those who've slandered you, Those who've made you lose your marriage and lose your job and done so much evil against you and apparently succeeded. Don't bother yourself trying to avenge. Leave it to the Lord. See what He will do on that particular day. Oh, friends, surely that should revive your drooping spirit to recognize the fact that a day is coming when every wrong will be turned to right a day is coming when God will reward faithfulness a day is coming when those who pulled the trigger to kill God's genuine people to blow out their brains will be crying out to the rocks to cover over them, to rescue them from the wrath of the Lamb. And those that were pitied on that day are the ones who will be hugging one another and praising the Lord. He has turned the tables. Well, the third aspect, and that takes us to the end of uh, Malachi, answers the question, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? And the message that Malachi was saying to the Israelites was, obey and trust. In our song today, we say, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Well, Malachi is just transposing those two words and is saying obey and trust, that's all. Don't let the outward circumstances make you lose sight of your present duty because you will be rewarded in the end. Obey and trust. Let's look at the way he puts it there in verse 4 right to the end. Obey is in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, what the Lord is saying there is not simply that you should go, oh yes, of course. I remember. He's not simply talking about cognitive remembrance. He's saying, get back to those laws. Get back to that model by which you are supposed to live. Because it's a failure to keep these laws that has resulted in your being punished in your being sent into captivity. So get back to those laws. Live by my commandments, he seems to be saying. What about the trust part? Verse 5 and verse 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Elijah that was to be sent is pointing to, I'll show you in a moment, the coming of John the Baptist, who will precede the coming of the Messiah. And so as he's speaking to them, he's basically saying, trust me, what I am talking to you about here awaits the coming of Messiah. Right now, as you read there, it looks like it's simply pointing to his first coming, but it's everything including his second coming. And I'll prove that to you in a moment. But you can see it here when it says, the, I'll send you light the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the great and awesome day of the Lord is not his birth. It is his second coming in judgment. And basically all he is saying is that the promises are a making are bound up in Messiah. He's coming, trust me. Earlier, he had put it this way, beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Basically the same. He says there, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? So there you have it again. There is the coming of John the Baptist to prepare the way for you. But as the prophet is looking, he's not just seeing that first event, he is seeing literally everything all the way to the second coming when he descends from heaven in the glory of the Father and then brings history to the end. And at that point, those who are his enemies, how can they endure? Well, well, There is evidence about this Elijah in, um, let's just quickly look at Mark 9 and Luke 1. Mark 9 and Luke 1, and then I will need to wrap this up. Mark 9 and Luke 1. Okay, Mark 9 and verse 11. Mark 9 and verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And then Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. Let me begin from verse 16. And he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, this is referring to John the Baptist, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, what God was saying to the people of Israel was this Trust me, I've got an agenda which goes beyond your little life. It's the bringing in of the great Messiah who will finally work out atonement for the people of God. When that is done, I will now work towards the final end when I will punish the wicked. Trust me. Be patient. Trust. Oh, brethren, that would have been a little more difficult for the people of Israel at the time Malachi was speaking than it is for us, for you and me sitting in this room. Why do I say so? Well, Elijah has come. At this point, it was at least 400 years before he came. Well, the Lord himself came. He has died. He's been, he, he satisfied all the promises of God that were related to his first coming. All of them have been fulfilled. What excuse have we got for failing to trust that even the promises related to the second coming will be fulfilled what is it that can make us fail to trust that what is it because for these people yes everything was ahead of them everything but for us we are right now in between the first and the second coming so surely we have no excuse today in the midst of the spiritual darkness that surrounds us, we have no excuse for failing to hang in there. We should be able to say, Master, increase my faith in the midst of these difficult times. But certainly your hope, rather your promises, are well worth hanging on. The hymn that I just quoted a few moments ago says, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy, in Jesus, but to trust and obey. It is that hope that revives the soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the way in which you encouraged a people whose spirits were drooping. Thank you that the same word of encouragement comes to us as well. Today, when as individuals, the circumstances around us suggest that you don't care about us, suggest that you reward positively those who are drinking in sin as if it was water. Lord, thank you that we too can get back to the days of Malachi and have our drooping spirits revived by the same hope that was being given to them. Help us, O Lord, to walk in trust of you and to obey you as your people, even in the days of spiritual declension. May we be among those who can be described as those who fear the Lord, who confer with one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.